And I think that in general will be the downfall of like literature in general. It's like, we don't want to publish things that will make people uncomfortable. And it's like, how much can you really learn about life if you're always comfortable? You know, like that's a fucking Disney movie right there, you know, just always comfortable, you know? So luckily somebody did accept the story. Um, and, and I do understand the concerns, but you know, my whole objective with the story was to kind of craft a 1984-esque story, but just with extreme hyperbolic sort of details. Welcome to Augzoro, a media platform built to make you think better, ignite conversations, and inspire you to do dope shit. I'm Zach, host of the Augzoro podcast, and I look forward to bringing you along on this journey today. Here are a few things you should know before we start the conversation. Number one, this podcast is a place for me to explore my curiosity and share what I've learned with others. Everyone I speak to on this podcast, whether they're a doctor, designer, music artist, or neuroscientist, is someone who does or makes dope shit. I will never speak to anyone on this podcast who does not truly excite me, whether they have 500 followers or 5 million. Number two, sometimes I get things wrong. There will be times when I listen back to this podcast and think, what a fucking idiot, or how could you say that? And that's okay. You are free to agree with what I say, disagree with what I say, or anything in between. By choosing to record my journey, I accept whatever reactions may come with it. All I ask is that if you hear something on this podcast you don't like or makes you uncomfortable, get fascinated before you get defensive. And number three, the best thing you can do to help this podcast grow is to share it with three other people and tag us on social media. If you feel inspired, pick out a quote to share on Instagram, write a blog post about the podcast on Medium, or record a video about the podcast on TikTok. Make sure you tag AdOgZoro on all platforms so that we can respond to you. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. So if this podcast has moved you in any way, we appreciate you spreading the word about Augzoro. This time, I sit down with Chris Cooper, a writer who has written some of the most beautifully twisted short stories I've ever read. These stories include The Swim, The Descent, Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish, and his most recent work, Calvin Klein, where Colin Kaepernick becomes the first dictator of the United States of America. If you have a craving for politically incorrect and creative stories like I do, you'll love Chris's writing. Here's an excerpt from an actual rejection letter that Chris received from one publication after submitting his most recent story, Calvin Klein. Quote, This story, Calvin Klein, is absolutely brazen, irreverent, twisted, but at the same time, absolutely brilliant. As much as I admire this startling story, I'm afraid I'll be absolutely crucified for publishing this. End quote. There you have it. I'll link all the stories I mentioned by Chris in the podcast description so you can check them out for yourself, which I highly recommend. In this episode, Chris and I discuss finding humor in rejection his fitness journey that has taken him through strongmans and steroids, how to become a better writer, what drives Chris at his core to keep telling stories, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Chris Cooper. 
let's talk about how you got started working out because we we had a discussion a couple of short discussions on the phone and we kind of mentioned some things we were going to go through and working out was one of those things yeah and so for those of you who are listening i have a quarantine gym set up we were talking about the the whole setup in my apartment and Chris actually wrote the copy for the creatine that I purchased without me knowing that he wrote the copy for it. So he looped me in. So he clearly knows what he's talking about. Serendipitous. Exactly. So how how did you get into fitness in general? Man. So if you were to see me even 10 years ago, I was such a stark difference from the person I am now. And I really got involved with fitness working out when I was in middle school. And it's like the quintessential story where the scrawny kid gets like picked on in middle school. So he's like, I want to, you know, get bigger and, and, you know, get revenge. You know, at the time, my dad and my brothers were very much into fitness and I was like seventh grade and I'm like, I want to get jacked. I want to get big. And they just were like, all right, well, let's see what you're, you're made of. You know, let's see if you have dedication because everybody at some point's like, I want to get jacked. I want to have massive biceps, but it's only the select few that have the discipline to work out regularly that actually achieve that. So I started working out very early and I was always playing sports. And by the time I got to ninth grade, you know, I was pretty, I mean, if you could say a kid's diesel, I was like 14, 15, 140 pounds. I was putting up like 240 on the bench. That's diesel. I would, I would yeah. define that as diesel. Okay. I, I think I was brushing 135 on bench in high school. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. And that was probably my weight too yeah. <laughs> at the time. Okay. All right. Yeah. So listen, I mean, everybody has to start st- somewhere. And, um, you know, I just really made it a habit. Like that was, and I think that, you know, from, from a broader perspective, that was kind of my identity for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And that was like the nascent stages of developing my identity was fitness, working out. Like I'm the guy, I'm the, I'm the dude at school that benches the most weight. You know, I'm the guy that deadlifts. So, you know, I started playing sports in high school and I was playing football. I actually went to a private school, all boys school, had to wear a tie blazer every day, you know, really taught me, you know, discipline being regimented, but, you know, I was playing sports and, and, we had these off-season, you know, weight training programs. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was benching more, you know, I was like a sophomore and I was benching more than like the senior, the star running back, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, at the time the coach was like, that's ah, weird, you know, or whatever. And I just remember- You said it was weird? Well, yeah. So it was, I, I, I remember going in and I was putting up like, I was like a sophomore, 140 pounds. I was putting up 225 for like 10 reps. Shit. You know? And like at 140 pounds- yeah. It's almost twice your body weight. Yeah. It's crazy. I kind of always thought that my strength would kind of project me into being this athlete, you know? And I remember at the time that, you know, and I don't want to like bad talk, you know, coaches, this is, you know, 17 years ago. I remember the coach pulled me aside and he was like, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to stop taking steroids. And I remember when he pulled me aside, I was thinking, he's going to be like, wow, you have such a work ethic. Like you're a strong kid, you know, but it went the complete opposite way. He was like belittled me. He's like, stop taking steroids, you know? And I remember at that time. So he didn't ask you, are you taking steroids? No, he He told me to stop taking. And at that time, I'm like, 
is that creatine? Like, am I taking, you know, like I had a yeah. clue, you know? And I just remember that point. I was just like, you know what? Fuck you, you know? And I stopped playing football at that time. And I was like, you know what? I want to go into powerlifting. I'm like, it's much different mentality. It's not a team effort. You can't pass the ball off or you can't rely on a teammate to, to score points or anything like that. It's all on you. And I went into powerlifting and it was like junior, senior year of high school. And I actually got a sponsorship during the time. I won nationals. I, I still have a record for the, I couldn't even remember. It's like NASM or no, NCP. Or I don't even know what the federation is, but they used to have these competitions in Bordentown, Atlantic City. And I still have a record for bench press. It was like a hundred, I was 155 pounds and I put up like 290 Jesus. And you're talking like a pause bench press. It's yeah. like commands down. All the way down. Pause up. All the way up. Yeah. So by the, by this time, you know, I'm going into college and I'm like, all right, I'm the power lifter. You know, like that's me. And then when I got to college, I shifted to strongman. And I had a sponsorship in college. And that was pretty much my whole life at that time. You know, like college was this whole secondhand experience. It was my main focus was strongman. And, you know, I would compete in contests. And I remember I won my first, my second strongman contest. And it was like this euphoric high where I was just like, this is what I need to do. Mm -hmm. I need to be the strongest man. What do you think was driving you to pursue the strength aspects of competition rather than the sports aspect of competition? Because I know a lot of, or not a lot, but um, I know a few football players who after their college career or pro football career faded, then they realize, oh, I have all this strength. Maybe I'll try to do strongman. And there are actually a couple of guys who do well in it from Richmond. But before that, I didn't know anyone in high school, at least that I was friends with that was doing strongman from the jump. It was always baseball, football, something like that. What what drew you to the strength aspect? So, you know, at the time, I didn't like the whole aspect of like, you mm-hmm. can't work out as heavy. You have to focus on the sport. And I remember like, I used to have to scale back some of my workouts so I can perform. And I'm like, this yeah. sucks. Like I'd rather be in the gym. Like I don't want to run drills. Like I want to go in and I want to overhead press, you know, like I had this early affinity for the working out aspect, the strength building. And so much so where I preferred to lift over actually playing the sport. And, you know, as the older I got, the clearer it became. And then I made that like my main focus. And, you know, like I said, it just, I was grasping on that, like as an identity, you know, at that age, you know, you're constantly struggling to find yourself as cliche as that that sounds. But that was like what I identified with. If If I wasn't the strong man, if I wasn't the jacked guy, like I didn't know who I was. Yeah. So... Do you feel like that helped you find at least part of yourself that you were looking for? Because everyone has the voids that they're trying to get through in high school or college. For for me, it was probably... My identity was, was so wrapped in baseball. If I mm-hmm. competed well and I had a good game, I would be nice. I would be kind to people for that week. Oh, absolutely. And if I pitched like shit, yeah. I would treat people like shit. And I wasn't like beating my brothers or anything like that. But like I was noticeably an angrier person or a kinder person based off my performance. And I didn't realize it looking... I didn't realize it at the time until I stopped playing. For you, do you think 
it was a good kind of latch to your identity? Did you feel like you found yourself in that in a healthy way? So no, I didn't. I really didn't. And I was neglecting my inherent ability to write, you know, and, and I don't know if we'll get into like how I started writing. I was always yeah, writing yeah, at an early sure. age, but you know, when I was in college, <laughs> you know, I would, I wouldn't go to class, an early morning class. Cause I'm like, you know what, like, this is going to fuck up my workout. Like, let me skip it. You know, I got to go to the gym, you know, like that was yeah. my focus. Like it was so ass backwards, you know, when I look back at it retrospectively and at the time, like, you know, I'm five foot six, barely like two at the time I was like 200 pounds, like I'm 190 right now. And like, those are not attributes of the world's strongest man, you know, like, so I had this, you know, these illusions of, of grandeur and, um, you know, it escalated because I was going out and doing anything, you know, I was taking anything, like I was abusing substances mm-hmm. to get to that level. And it's actually, it, it's a good transition into like the most cataclysmic sort of event of my life was the development of panic attacks. Yeah. And that's when my whole life shifted when I was in college and I started getting these, like, not just like, oh, I feel fluttering and I'm, I'm uncomfortable. It's like, boom, like earth shattering, like gripping you by the soul sort of panic attacks where mm-hmm. like you can't focus on anything but not dying. Do you think it was a combination of the drugs you were taking at the time and the, the situation you were in? Or I think that, th- you know, the certain drugs definitely exacerbated the situation, but you know, later was it steroids at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if you even look at the industry right now, like none of the top, like every one of the top performers is on some sort of mm-hmm. juice. Like that's just well known. Like if you ever followed Rich Piana before he died. Yeah. Like yeah. he'll tell you, be like that guy you idolize on juice, you know? Yeah, like if the, you, the guy who's telling you that he got jacked by taking whey protein yeah. and <laughs> doing band curls in a magazine yeah. that's like 6'3", 300 yeah. pounds, or 4% you ever body fat. Saw, did you ever see Bigger, Stronger, Faster, the documentary? Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, so th- that yeah. stuff is 100% accurate. Yeah. And um, the panic attacks really kind of, when I, at the time they were like devastating, they were crippling and they were inhibiting my ability to even exist. But as I look back, like they were a godsend because, you know, they forced me to start looking introspective, like introspectively mm-hmm. into myself to figure out like what's going on. So, you know, if we talk about, you know, anxiety and the catalyst for it, you know, it, at the time, you know, when you experience anxiety, it's like the fight or flight sort of feelings, you know, and during, when you experience one, you're not rational whatsoever. You're indulging mm-hmm. in the conspiracies of the mind. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm having a heart attack. I'm dying, you know, and you could yeah. have a thousand panic attacks, but every yeah. time you have one, you're gonna be like, this is it. I'm dead. I'm going to be dead. Yeah. I, I actually, I've spoken about uh, a panic attack. I had a couple of times on the podcast where I actually called my mom to drive me to the hospital because I thought I was dying. I was in a Starbucks with my brother and <laughs> I, I had a similar feeling where my heartbeat was basically just going through the roof in a Starbucks and the figurative walls like literally started closing we'll in yep. and I'd never experienced that before. And I remember looking at my vital signs, all fine on the monitor, you know, 62 pulse, your blood pressure is normal. The nurse is telling me it's a panic attack. And I, I was so paranoid that I thought 
she was in on it. Yeah. Everyone else in the hospital was wow. in on it. Like they're showing me fake vitals. And, and then part of me was like, you're crazy. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. That's having all these fucked up thoughts. And yeah. so, and, and I consider myself lucky because for those few months, I never, I, I was, my nervous system was kind of fried for a few months, but then eventually it kind of went back to normal. But I know people wake up every day thinking they're going to, it's going to be a nightmare as yeah. soon as they, they wake up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure at the time, like when you're experiencing that panic attack, the last thing you want to do is kind of search or uncover the impetus for what's causing that panic attack. You want to escape. You want to run away. You want to go mm -hmm. to the hospital. You want a doctor to look at you and say, hey, everything's good. You know what I mean? Like the last thing yeah. you want to do is uncover what's going on internally. And it wasn't until I saw, I don't know, 12 psychologists, psychiatrists, that I started to realize that these panic attacks are, you know, you're like, your mind is so fucking powerful. It is so powerful, you know, and it can seriously be the protagonist or the antagonist of your life. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why people engage on entrepreneurial sort of ventures, you know, with confidence or can dance in front of a crowd and not give a shit what anyone thinks about. Or it's the reason why people are fucking afraid of their shadows, you know, mm -hmm. afraid to go outside. You know, mm -hmm. it's all comes back to your thoughts. And that is some, to me, it was such an abstract sort of idea at the time. But the more I started engaging in that and reading philosophy and studying psychology, you know, you can learn so much from your anxiety and your panic attacks. And you can, you know, at this point in time, you know, and I'm not like, I'm not trying to perform myself as like an expositor of anxiety or anything mm -hmm. like that. I'm just speaking from my personal experiences. But, you know, I still deal with panic attacks regularly, but I've figured out how to talk to myself. I figured out how to uncover what's the cause. And I figured out how to channel this anxiety mm -hmm. into a constructive outlet, you know, something productive. And that's how I got to writing. Could you, could you walk me through before we get into the, the writing aspect? Because I think this would also help some people out too, and, and including myself, because I'm interested. When you feel a panic attack coming on, or maybe you wake up one day and you know, you, you feel you're particularly anxious. So mm -hmm. you think, okay, maybe today I'm prone to a panic attack, what sort of self-talk do you use? What activities, mindsets, anything physical, emotional do you do to not get rid of it? Because I think that's kind of a pipe dream to just be like, I'm going to feel zero anxiety today, but to be able to get through the things that you need to do in a more comfortable way. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I'll always do is I'll check my pulse, right? I'll go like this. And I can tell if it's elevated. And nine times out of 10, most people check their pulse and it escalates. It's like, oh shit, this is a heart attack. Oh no, let me feel my heart. And then it's mm -hmm. like, you get these palpitations and you're like, oh no, palpitations. Yeah. Now what's next? Now it's going to be constricting. Now I'm going to feel pain. And, you know, you kind of get yourself into this cycle of just fucking madness. <laughs> and, you know, for people that don't understand anxiety, they're just like, what's wrong with you? Chill out. Like, yeah. I, w I was one of those people yeah. uh, before uh, I was 23 with that instance when I went to the hospital and yeah, I, I was like, oh, these dudes are 
pussies or girls or pussies that like yeah. would That's get panic attacks. I didn't understand what it was until I actually got one. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I mean to. No, to no, 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 absolutely not. So the first thing I'll do is I'll check my symptoms. And then what I'll do is I'll nine times out of 10, you will, there's, there's a trigger for a panic attack. It's whether you see something or, you know, st- a stimulation or a stimuli that kind of brings you into a mood. It can be something from, you know, that triggers a memory. It can be something that you're mulling over now and it sends you into this torrent of just thought and just panic. And, you know, it sounds so blase, but like you have to try to focus on your breath and you want to breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your mouth. And like most people will just be like... (laughs) And just yeah. make it even worse, you know, but you have to take back control from your panic attack. And that's the one thing that I've learned is, is that you tend to revert yourself into this victim mentality. Like I am being assailed right now. I am under mm-hmm. attack. You need to, and it's, it's so painful. It's so easy to say this, but it takes so much practice. Like um, I've been dealing with panic attacks almost 13 years now. And like, I'll still get a panic attack and I'll be like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, you know? And I've had thousands of them, you know? But it's when you start trying to slow yourself down and to start trying to pick your thoughts apart. And for me, I'm literally like the thinker stature statue from like thousands of years ago. Like the the French sculptor, Auguste Rodin. It's mm. like, I don't know if you know the, the sculpture I'm talking the, about. The thinker where you're just sitting there. Exactly. Yeah. And like that is hundreds of years old, you know? And I think that that is what it comes down to. It's your thoughts. And so your get, breath and your thoughts, picking apart your thoughts and kind of recognizing how absurd they are. And absolutely, absolutely. But you can, if you sit with yourself long enough, you can really and if you have to be active you can't just be like okay 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 like end you know no you mm-hmm. have to be active and you have to say to yourself like no um this is not happening to me i'm going to figure this out and if you could sit with yourself and this is something i've like tried to experiment with you know yeah. like kind of giving myself a panic attack to kind of like you gave yourself a panic attack well if i could feel one going on like you'll I'll, go into it yeah and and it's like you know and listen we could get into philosophy because yeah. if it wasn't for philosophy like philosophy psychology anxiety like they are so intertwined like mm-hmm. and i could go on for days about that but when it comes to the anxiety and the panic attacks you can usually identify what they're coming from. You could say like, all right, I, I missed a bill or something like that. Or I'm, I'm feeling stressed from work. You know what I mean? Like you, if you could sit with yourself long enough and you can breathe, it will come to you. It mm-hmm. will tell you. Your, body, your mind will tell you, will reveal yourself if you're ready to listen. That's the thing. If you're not ready to listen, if you're not ready to dig into your subconscious, then you're going to just fucking suffer from panic attacks. Yeah, And that's the one thing that I realized is that the subconscious mind, the unconscious mind plays such a major role in your regular life. And most people have no clue about that. How does that journey up to that point with the, the power lifting, the, the anxiety, the, the relationship with steroids, which I respect you being able to talk about, by the way, because yeah. I'm actually, 
we can do a whole, a whole separate podcast on uh, steroids, but I, yeah. I was uh, interested in it as a, a baseball player and then going into college with like reading the whole Balco book and, and Barry Bonds and stuff. And that's a whole... Mind opening. Mind boggling. Yeah, mind boggling. How much nuance there is to the conversation that is not mainstream. It's not just steroids bad and not steroids good, like all the other things that go into it. So how does everything combine with the drugs, the anxiety, the powerlifting to lead to writing or, or mm-hmm. at least doing it more consistently? So I think we kind of have to kind of retrace my like writing yeah, let's timeline. do it. So growing up, I have two older brothers, right? One mm-hmm. that's 10 years older than me, one that's six years older than me. So growing up, and I was like four or five, I was always like precocious just because I had these older brothers, you know, like mm-hmm. I would, you know, sneak into the room at four years old and I'd find a porno, right? In a VCR with like ripped off tape on it. And I'd watch yeah. it, you know, like- It, it uh, says like physics homework. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's just what you do as a kid. Yeah. You're like you're always, you're, you idolize your brothers, you know? They're almost like gods to you. So yeah. I would always like try to emulate them. I listen to the music that they listen to. And I always had this hyperactive sense of like creativity, imagination. Like when I would play with toys, like I wouldn't just take figures and fight them, right? Like I would come up with like backstories, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like at six years old, like here's the GI Joe, here's Colonel such and such. And, you know, he's an alcoholic and, and this is at like six years yeah. old. And I'm like, and he's struggling to deal with like everyday life and he's channeling his aggression into killing other soldiers, you know, like. That's a, that's a very <laughs> uh, deep picture for a six-year-old to paint with yeah, an action yeah. figure. So fast forward to third, second grade, third grade. I'm the first kid in William Woodruff School in New Jersey to get suspended for a book that I wrote, right? What was this book? And shout out to Robbie Yanata, who um, I kind of lured him into this. I just, he he did nothing. Mm -hmm. I just wrote his name on it because we were friends. Yeah. But I wrote this book and I was eight years old and it was about me and this kid, Robbie. And we would go to New York City because, you know, that's the cool spot to be in New York City, obviously, you know? And we fought bad guys and um, we went to strip clubs in it. And I drew like naked chicks and I had curse words in it. I remember it vividly at the time, like my third grade teacher, Miss Kyle, saw me coloring and, and writing. She's like, oh, what, what are you working on? And I just, I remember looking up and I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, no, she can't see this. And she grabbed it and she started reading it. And sure enough, I was suspended. And um, at the time, my parents were like, holy shit, like you can't write stuff. You, you can't, you can't put anything in writing. And from that, from eight years old to 14 years old, I was always getting in trouble. I had one of those, do you remember those online journals or open journal that was like kind of it, popular for a little bit? It, it sounds familiar. I don't know if I ever used one, but I, I can kind of picture it. So I, I was always writing stuff that got me in trouble. And I wrote like an open journal and I was like mimicking Fight Club at the time. And, you know, I was like 12 or 11 and the school... Kids were like, yeah, let's start a fight club. <laughs> yeah. And then I got in trouble with that at school. So like I have a history of always getting in trouble with writing. So, so your your writing was actually sparking action within the, the students at the school. Yeah. I was I was Which is the definition of a, a good writer. You want people to take action. I mean, in a sense, you know, I, I was always and I don't know, you know, like I, maybe it was bored, you know, I was in the suburbs, but I was very impressionable. You know, I would see these movies and I'd listen to this music and 
I just had this imagination and I would always put something in writing and it always got me in trouble. And, um, you know, so fast forward when I'm in high school, you know, I was in all English honors classes. Mm-hmm. And um, because they read the strip no. club story, <laughs> they're no, like, this, not kid, at all. this kid's, this kid's advanced. <laughs> no, we kept that a secret. But you yeah. were, you were yeah. telling, you wanted to tell deep stories that had darker, more, uh, kind of like hedonistic aspects in them from a younger age. So like getting into that whole dark sort of aspect, I, as a kid, I always identified with the villains mm-hmm. in Batman. I was never the superhero. I was always the penguin or the Joker or, you know, the villain. And looking back at it, I'm like, I always had like a proclivity towards the darkness and like the, the bad sort of aspect, you know? But so getting back to high school, you know, I was in English honors classes and I had a really um, inspiring English teacher in high school, Mr. DeFiori, who I actually still keep in touch with today. And he just had a way of making being intellectual cool, you know, and, you know, it's the stereotype goes, if you're smart, you're, you know, a dweeb, you know, and he just had a way of reading literature and we covered Edgar Allan Poe and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he had a way of relating these topics to contemporary sort of issues, you know, like the cask of Amontillado that deals with you know, deception. And it just like really resonated with me. So I always had this ability to write, but I kind of got sucked into this whole aspect of powerlifting and strongman. And for a while there in college, I would do these contests and I would maybe take top five. I would never win because I'm not six foot five, 300 pounds. And so for a while there, I'm like, you know what? I keep taking this stuff. I keep busting my ass off and it's getting me nowhere. And I realized at the time that was the catalyst for my panic attacks. Like I was getting no sort of validation from the strong man aspect any longer. You felt trapped by it almost? Yeah, absolutely. And that escalated into me seeking validation and affirmation through a relationship, right? And then that was my focus, like relationships, a girlfriend. Like I had a girlfriend, always had a girlfriend, you know? And then when a relationship didn't work out, like, I would kind of lash out, you know, and like I went through this spurt in college where I would just, I had this internal conflict and I didn't know what to do with it because I wasn't cognizant of panic attacks and what they really, you know, what they symbolize. So I was lashing out at people. I would just go to parties and I just punch somebody in the face. Like I just start fights all the time, (laughs) all the time. So, you know, you know, Dave, right? Yeah. roommate. And he, he's like the only guy that actually stood by me. He would just be like, Coop don't start a fight tonight. And I'm like, all right, I'll try. And then next thing you know, I start fighting. He's like, all right, well, come on. And then he'd fight with me and then he'd get me out of there, you know? But, you know, you, you start lashing out and, you know, I, I destroyed a lot of good friendships, a lot of good relationships in the past just from my, because of my internal conflict. And, you know, I didn't really understand, you know, why I acted on these impulses. I was very visceral and, you know, it's just, I was searching for meaning and, you know, it wasn't until maybe I was 25 that I really kind of was faced with an existential crisis. And, um, you know, are you familiar with like philosophy and that whole sort of ordeal? I have a a general understanding of of some of the philosophies. I've been more into stoicism with journaling and 
reading excerpts from meditations and not reacting uh, 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 Epictetus. Yeah. Basically kind of letting your emotions run through you and doing these sort of negative visualizations is a big part of it where you imagine the worst thing to happen and you kind of feel it and you let it run through you. Yeah. And then you kind of experience it before it happens yeah. in your mind. And so that that's a big part of it. That That's the philosophy that I'm most familiar with. The other ones are more, I read about it in high school, required reading yeah. or kind of have a peripheral understanding. So I had, so till I was like 25, like I said, like I, you know, I was a personal trainer. Then I was, you know, a, I was like a recruiter for nurses. I had, I was a paralegal. Like I had all mm-hmm. these ridiculous jobs. And um, I did go to school, you know, college. I have an English literature mm-hmm. degree, but I never took that serious. I was just like, oh, I like reading. I like writing. And it was easy. You know, like I would crank out 10 page papers, like half drunk, you know, and I'd get an A on. And, and that was it. You know, like I was like, all right, that's, oh, cool. that's secret sauce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I never really took, you know, writing seriously. I was just like, you know what? I need to just get a job. And, you know, at that time, like I was like 25, like my whole sort of purpose was just sinking myself in a relationship. And, you know, at the time I experienced like a heartbreak and, you know, everybody deals with heartbreak and, and you know, trauma to some degree, you know, and it's not anything, you know, I don't, I almost feel stupid for saying like heartbreak, you know, like there's people that die from cancer, you know, like how traumatic can heartbreak be? But in my case, it was really, it was formative. It really shook me to the core where, you know, I was faced again with, you know, these panic attacks and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who I was like. Yeah, you have physical reactions to to heartbreak. Definitely. I did not realize that until my first serious heartbreak in college where you feel like a part of you is being ripped out physically and you have a whole. Well, for a while there, I was always the one destroying relationships. Like, you know, from whatever sort of external, you know, void I was trying to fill or internal void. But, you know, this heartbreak really shook me because I'm 25. I don't know. I don't have a career. I don't have really any friends because I've destroyed every relationship I've had or friendship. And, you know, my identity was this girl, you know, and you take that away. I, I just remember being like, I don't know what to do with myself. Like it's Friday night. What do I do? Like, do I just sit on like, you know, like it really shakes things up. And for a while, like I was always seeking an external source to kind of pacify my anxiety. And it wasn't until this point in my life did I start taking an introspective look, you know, and I started going to a psychologist and psychiatrist. And, you know, a psychiatrist was the worst and, and I'm not trying to shit on that profession whatsoever, but every psychiatrist I went to was just like, tell me about yourself. And I'd speak for 10 minutes and they'd be like, all right, let me write you a Prozac or, you know. So psychiatrist prescribes drugs, yeah. psychologists is more the, the, the typical therapy. Yeah. Okay. And I saw a hundred psychologists and, you know, this is, and, and I'm not just speaking on a tangent because this stuff all involves my writing mm-hmm. now, but like I would go to a psychologist and I would study her. I'd see if she'd look at the clock. I'd see if she ended early. I'd see if she was distracted, if she was really listening. And it wasn't until I, you know, a psychologist said, you need to really start understanding yourself, kind of picking things apart, you know, kind of looking into your childhood a little bit, seeing, you know, what sort of behaviors, you know, patterns you repeat. And like this stuff was like so arcane. Like I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like I'm having a panic attack now. You know, like Mm -hmm. it was, I didn't want to confront it. And, um, 
you know, for the past, you're, you're talking 10 years or almost 10 years of panic attacks and I still don't know what the hell they're about. And then it wasn't until these past couple of years I started reading philosophy that it was just such a wake-up call. I started reading Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher. And you're talking people from like 100 plus years ago that were dealing with anxiety. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in the moment of a panic attack, the one thing that comforts you is knowing that somebody else understands what you're going through. And like that connection. Yeah. 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 And so I started reading Soren Kierkegaard and he's like, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, possibilities. And that's really how you can describe it because there's so many possibilities. There's so many permutations. Like, are you going to die? Are you, you know what I mean? Like your mind races. So it's like you're being overwhelmed by all the options that you have yes. and you're not really sure yes. where to go or what to do. It's like reading these words and then that transition into Albert Camus, you know, who is, you know, a, a French philosopher who dealt with absurdism and, you know, I started really diving into the whole existential crisis and, you know, it comes down to how do we make sense of our existence? You know, he talks about, you know, the leap of faith. You know, if you put all of your credence in religion, you know, then that's how you explain us being here. That's how you explain us right now, you know, speaking like a guy in the sky created us. And once we die, we're going to go live in heaven and we're going to be living on, you know, plush comforters and everything's going to be great, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I I got fed some of this stuff in high school and stuff like that, but, you know, you can grasp onto these ideas, but it's not until you take this sort of dialectic approach where you're like, is that really it? Like, are, are women experiencing pain in childbirth because of original sin, you know, according to the Bible? Like, is that, is that how you want to live your life? Like, oh yeah, that's, that's why, you know? Yeah. So I, you know, I took this deeper dive into, you know, existentialism and existentialism is just finding meaning. And there's a vein in nihilism, you know, and nihilism is the belief that everything means nothing. There's no point of doing anything. It's a very pessimistic outlook. And it wasn't until I started kind of reading about absurdism that I really like everything just clicked. And like, I, I, I'm not in like the complete stage of transfiguration, like 10 years, maybe I'm going to feel differently. But at this point, I really find comfort in the whole idea of absurdism that life, while it has no inherent meaning, you can embrace that. You can kind of rebel against the meaning and enjoy trivial bullshit, like pop. So nihilism is no meaning and that's where it ends. And then absurdism is... The same idea. The no meaning and also the counteraction to the no meaning. Yeah. So so absurdism is is that life is absurd. There's no reason for anything. But, you know, and and when I say life is meaningless with absurdism, people are like, well, that's just so pessimistic. And that conflicts with my... Pinterest board and inspirational Yeah, that, that doesn't go on my mood board. Yeah. That's not my mood board. And like, I'm like, you're not listening because the whole idea of life being meaningless is not a negative sort of sentiment. It is the complete opposite. It is inspiring. It is the reason that we should all be present in the moment now, enjoying the people we love, you know, enjoying what makes us feel purposeful. 
And it's not this negative sentiment. It is the most liberating idea, you know, that you have the ability to fail at something. And who gives a shit? Because none of this really matters in the end. Like, what is, so to get into philosophy, like, we're all going to fucking die, right? Yeah, that's a big part of uh, stoicism. Yeah. Think of meditate on your death. Well, they say meditation is practicing for death, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I think if we, you know, we're so conditioned to avoid death, we're so conditioned to avoid rejection. We want to avoid all these things because we've been told, we've been conditioned that these things are, are no good. Avoid them. You know, put on the Disney channel, put on a romantic comedy and smile, you know, like, and I feel like we are really missing out like the whole beauty of life. You know, the fact that we all die someday gives our time right now meaning. If we live forever, if we go and we live with God in heaven, then what's the point of of stress, you know, like of doing anything right now if down the road we're just going to be living in heaven? You know, like that's awesome. So I'll just sit on this couch and do nothing until it's time to go to heaven, you know? Yeah. Like the fact that you can embrace that there's no light at the end of the tunnel, for me at least, is the most liberating idea. So from writing, right? If I write a book, I should be writing this book to sell it, you know? Like that would be like, oh, you know, if if I believed, if I wasn't an absurdist, it would be like, all right, if you write this book, then that's your purpose, right? But if you don't get it sold, then you failed, right? And that sort of idea is is kind of transmuted my whole philosophy about writing. It's just like, no, you write this book right now for yourself because you enjoy it. You don't worry about if somebody's going to pick it up, if a publisher is going to pick it up. And that sort of idea, I mean, for me at least, has really helped me manage my anxiety because for a while there, you're like, oh, you're going to die. You're going to die, you know? And it's like, well... If you're going to die, you're going to die. And that's it. Yeah. You kind of acquiesce to this, all this pressure that you have to do something. You have to feel a certain way. I do feel like acknowledging death and thinking about death has made the things that I do feel more meaningful and, and allowed me to be more present. And I, I went to an all boys Catholic school. We did too. So you know how to tie your tie, right? I tied them and left them in my locker and just put oh, it around no. and, and, and looped them up. And okay. I, so I still know how to tie it. I, yeah. I haven't worn a tie in probably a, a, almost a year. I, tr- I tried to avoid ties like the plague. Okay. Um, <laughs> not to reference the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> or Al- Albert Camus, he wrote uh, The Plague, the book. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I felt a shift in my life becoming more meaningful once I got away from Catholicism and like these I, absolutes. I, yeah, yeah, absolutes. And, and I started reading more Stoicism. I started reading more Richard Dawkins. And according to him, I'd be a, a de facto atheist, which is I live my life as though God doesn't exist, though I acknowledge there's a chance that yeah. there's some higher power. And I do believe in higher powers in the sense of spiritual connections that we don't yet have the science to understand yet. Like the way that things like music or podcasting or writing connects us like at yeah. a, okay. almost like an ethereal level. I, I think there's more there, uh, but yeah, when, when you talk about absurdism and I need to look more into it, cause it sounds like something that would kind of go well with, with stoicism. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. 
it makes me think about the shift that I kind of realized, which in a way I have on my door before I walk out, it says, be kind to others because you may never walk this way again, There you go. which is, you know, the fact that I'm only getting one go round makes it more meaningful. I'm, this may be the last interaction I have with this person ever. Yeah. This, just yesterday I did a, this negative reflection meditation where I imagined it was the last podcast I was ever going to record with a music artist yesterday did one remotely. And I was like, this could be the last podcast ever. I hope it's, it's not, crazy. but like yeah. I might, you know, get a, uh, aneurysm right after and just fucking drop dead. Yeah. Like, so. And, and that's, and that's the beauty of life though. You know, some people will think that's harrowing, but that's the beauty. It's like, take every moment to feel and not just be like, all right, I'm feeling, let me pick out my phone and go on Instagram and, yeah. you know, dull myself. It's like, enjoy what you're drinking. Like, and feel yourself breathing, you know? Yeah. It jacked me up and made me more excited yeah. because I, it was like, I, I could, I'm going to die sometime. And one of these days is going to be my last podcast. I hope it's not for 50 years, but yeah. one of these days it's going to be it. So how does the absurdism and the, the change in philosophy then lead to the writing? Because you were talking about the overwhelming with all the options, kind of paralysis by overanalysis. Mm-hmm. How does the absurdist the absurdism change of view lead to the right, the the act of writing, taking more seriously and trying to get Mm -hmm. published. So when I, so writing is kind of like my hobby at this time. And and like, it's not something that I can make a living off of, even though I get, you know, small residuals at this point. But, you know, I became a copywriter because it just so happens if you're an English literature major, your options are limited unless you want to be a teacher you know, and like, I definitely don't want to do that. So I got into copywriting. I work actually for a Fortune 500 company. It's a major retailer. I don't want to like drop their name just in case, you know, like anything I say jeopardizes, but I have a lot of freelance clients. So I do the writing on the side. And, you know, when I first got back into writing, it was right after this breakup because I didn't have any sort of outlet. I didn't know what to do. So this is like 25, you said around there? It was 25, it was like 2013. And I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. Like I was just like so beaten down and I finally got a job as a copywriter. You know, it was like low level. I was like starting to build myself up, but I would go home and instead of going to a bar or, you know, looking for an external source to kind of pacify my, you know, anxiety and my disquietude, I started writing. And at first it was like, the most emo, you know, prosaic bullshit. It was first person narratives. It read like a fucking dear diary. It was like, I'm so fucking sad. And, you know. Yeah. But when I look back at it. But it was writing. It was writing. Yeah. It really was. And it really helped understand. Like I started writing to help understand myself. And, <clears throat> you know, that sounds like one of those cliches, something that you read on in Instagram. But. When you start writing... That's going to be the ta- caption for this interview. <laughs> Chris writes to understand himself. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, just fucking kill me. Um, so, you know, I started writing and you, you, you'd you write these thoughts down. And when you go back and you look at it, you start realizing like what was important to yourself. You know, like what sort of things did you pay attention to? And you can start... It's it's so therapeutic and and it's easy to say, but when you write something down and you go back and you read it and you feel it, you own it, and you can kind of move on for it. And so this like Dear Diary Breakup book was my first book. It was called Fix It Broken. 
And before I knew it, I had a 110,000 word novel. And I was, you know, this is 2016. I just kept writing on with it and I was done with it. And then I started pitching it around and I got it accepted. So I got two acceptances. My first, my first query letter ever. And I don't know if you know about query letters, right? Mm -mm. So the publishing industry is fucking exhausting, right? So to sell a book, you need to acquire literary agents. You need to require representation because publishers, big publishers don't, want to bother with unsolicited manuscripts. You know, they want to get it pitched by people that are reputable. So the way a query letter works is you have to search literary agents. You have to study up on them, see what their likes are, see, see what their strong cases are. And then you have to write the most aggrandizing, pompous, like letter. It's almost like a research paper. And it's like, hi, I discovered you through this. And I know you like this. I know you published this. And I see that you have an interest in that, you know, and it's like, it's stuff that just sucks the life out of your soul. <laughs> yeah. And I wrote- Like, like you don't, you don't want to be doing it. You'd no, rather be spending no, your time writing something else. It's the else. worst yeah. experience ever. And you're just, it almost feels like you're on a blind date. You're like, I need to write so you like me. Like, do you like me? You know, like it's, it is the most vacuous bullshit ever. So I wrote a query letter. It got accepted. They read the first three chapters and they're like, no, we're going to pass. And then I wrote maybe a hundred more query letters and they all got rejected. And then I got accepted. I sent three chapters and they liked it. Then they said, all right, send the rest, right? So at this point, this is 2017. Mm -hmm. I haven't been published at all yet. And I'm like, holy shit. So you've shit. been writing for four years at this point? Just, about? just that just, book. Okay. Just that book. And um, so I finally get accepted and they're like, hey, listen, we're going to offer you a deal. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to be a writer, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, there's one stipulation. They're like, well, actually, there's several stipulations. Once you give us this book, you're signing off the rights to it. So if it ever becomes a movie, you get nothing. And they're like, also, we want to change the ending, right? And I'm like, you want to change the ending? I'm like, all right, well, what is it? And they're like, well, we like that it ends, you know, ambiguously, but we kind of want like a really happy ending. And like, I, I remember being on the phone and I'm like, That's I'm like the fucking we'll, puke. We'll get it. We'll get into uh, some of the ways that you end your stories without yeah. giving away okay. the endings. But happy endings is the complete opposite of yes. the short stories that you've put out that yeah. we'll get into. So I imagine you <laughs> saw that and you threw up. So, oh, well, so, so it, it was, it was weird because I was like in this state of ambivalence. I'm like, oh, well, I got accepted, but. I didn't really get accepted. They want me to fucking become Nicholas Sparks. And the whole, the title of my book is Fix It Broken. And the whole pitch is not everything that's broken always needs to get fixed. And that's like the overarching theme. This guy thinks he needs to fix himself. He needs to improve himself. And, you know, it kind of channeled this whole sentiment that, you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with, but, you know, people are so consumed with trying to find themselves and, what they really need to do is start understanding themselves, all right? Because you can search for everything, you can, you know, look, you can read whatever, but until you start understanding yourself, you're never going to be yeah. complacent. F and f finding yourself is is a, a one-time thing. You find yourself and mm -hmm. you think, oh, uh, this is yeah. me. Understanding yourself is a lifelong yeah. journey. There's a more of a constant implication of you wake you wake up and you understand yourself more deeply or you don't yeah every day but say, say you find yourself right so what's the point of doing anything after that 
you know? Just waste away on yeah. Instagram. Exactly. So getting back to this book. So they wanted me to fix this ending where he reconnects with his college girlfriend and they fall in love at his book signing. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I would rather fucking light myself on fire than write that ending. And I had- What did you tell them? And I'm like, I'll think about it. And they're like, listen- we don't want to step on your creative toes, okay? And like, like they speak in these like these metaphors. Yeah. And they're like, you have the ability to write whatever ending you want, but we want to get it to there, right? And everybody I talked to was like, do it, do it, do it. And I'm like, I can't do it. I just can't do that. I will sell this book. It'll be in stores and I'm going to forever preface it. But it'll anybody. eat you alive. Well, I'm going to forever preface it just to people. I'm going to be like, well, listen, this is the book, but just so you know, the real ending is supposed to be this, you know? And I'm like, I can't fucking live like that, you know? And I think like that kind of is a microcosm for the absurd. Like you're confronted with this absurdity and it's like, you can either just acquiesce to it and say whatever, or you can fucking rebel against it, you know, and stick to like what gives you life, you know? And I, I turned it down and I'm like, I can't do it. And I knew right in th then and there that that book is going to forever live in my fucking desk drawer on my laptop, you know? Yeah. And, and that's fucked up. I, I don't know the ins and outs of the, the publishing industry. I would think that you would at least get the rights to your own book if it becomes a movie or a TV series or something like that. Because then you're, you don't have to work ever yeah. again. Well, make millions well, of dollars. So here's the thing. They, they, try, they take advantage of these. And, and I'm, listen, I don't want to you know, burn any bridges. I love literary agents. I love the whole publishing experience. I think it's great. Yeah, we love you guys yes, and gals. Yes, and you know, you guys make the world go round. But like, from from that aspect, it's like, I, I don't know, like how, how do you live with yourself at, at that point? You know, if you're sacrificing that much. And I think that they take advantage of these unpublished writers. It's like, you want to be published? You're going to mm -hmm. do what I said. You know? yeah. And I understand they have to, you know, try to market your book and they want to try to find a niche for it and, and a target audience. And I understand the logistics of all that. But I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm like, this book is inspiring by itself. It's telling you that if you're broken, you don't have to fix yourself. I'm like, how is that not inspiring? Like, is, is yeah. that inspiring or is like him, his fucking you know, a, an unrealistic ending, him reconnecting a with a girlfriend. Like, it, in a lot of ways, a happy ending is uninspiring it because really it, is. it's such a, yeah. it's such a huge separation from how I feel in my own life compared to how things are always ending up. And not to say that I'm not happy. I, I feel at this point in my life, I feel more at peace than I've ever been, but I'm not walking around in a romantic comedy 24 yeah. seven, like, Oh my God, this is fucking amazing. Like every book or like Nicholas, you mentioned Nicholas, Nicholas Sparks, Sparks yeah. or any romantic comedy, you know, it's not realistic. And at the same time, for whatever reason, publishing companies have decided that they want to try to sell something else. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I understand because the probability of publishing a book nowadays is like less than half a percent because everybody and their mother is a writer to some degree that the industry is so saturated with everybody that has a memoir or, you know, oh, I want to be a writer, so I'm going to pitch it. So they get thousands of queries a day. Mm -hmm. you know? So I understand they have the advantage. They can yeah, they say, need to they can dictate. Have the 
they need to have some sort of structure where they say, okay, we're going to accept this or reject this. Yeah. And, and I understand that. And that was a crucial moment for me because, because I turned that down, I realized I had to kind of reinvent myself. And that's how I transitioned into the short stories. Yeah. I think a good way to get into the the short stories, and, and I picked out a few quotes that we'll get into because I want to be able to get into the short stories without telling people the ending because I'm going to link them all to this podcast and, and okay. people go people can go yeah. read them because the endings are fucking sick and twisted and beautiful. And I don't want yeah. people to yeah. uh, be like, oh, well, I yeah. heard how it ends. Well, so. listen, tell my, tell my mom that because every story I write, she calls I'll me. I'll send this podcast to <laughs> your mom. <laughs> yeah. So she was like a nervous wreck today. She's like, you're going to go on there. She's like, don't say anything that'll ruin your, your job choices down the road. And I'm like, I know when I run for president in 10 years, I'm like, this is going to come back. And this, this will be Mrs. Cooper approved. <laughs> yeah. But she'll read a story and she'll be like, Oh, I, I liked it. She's like, but the ending was so sad. She's like, oh, are you going to write a happy ending? And I'm like, yes, mom, one day I'll write you the perfect ending that will fulfill everything you, you know. Let's get into some of the rejection letters that you sent me before the podcast. Yeah. And to give some background information. These are from your most recent story called Calvin Klein. Yeah. And Calvin Klein deals with a lot of racial issues. It deals with reparations. It deals with a lot of the things that are going on now, like uh, the, the George Floyd killing. And it's kind of like an extremist overcorrection view of what's going on today. Mm -hmm. And I picked out a couple of quotes that were startling and also like kind of funny because they were saying you're good, but we're not taking your story. Yeah. That's, that's an overarching thing. <laughs> yeah. I basically that, that. I've literally, I wrote that. I was like common theme, like story's good. Uh, we're not taking it though. <laughs> yeah. Good, good writer. Terrible, terrible story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is, this is, uh, the first quote that I picked out about Calvin Klein and this person writes, listen, you're clearly a really talented writer. That's obvious. But this story is insensitive. As much as I admire your writing ability, this story will cause outrage. I'm going to have to pass, but feel free to send me anything that's less controversial. Yeah. And the second one, this is from a, a different rejection. Uh, same story, though. This story, Calvin Klein, is absolutely brazen irreverent, twisted, but at the same time, absolutely brilliant. As much as I admire this startling story, I'm afraid I'll, abs I'll be absolutely crucified for publishing this. LOL. Yep. This person wrote LOL. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I wish I possessed the temerity to put out a piece like this, but alas, I must obey the power it be. So <laughs> I wrote down three themes from, I think there were five or six different rejections. All of yep. them had these in it. They said... One, your story is good. Mm -hmm. Two, it's controversial. Mm -hmm. And three, some sort of bowing to the powers that be. Like, I'm not rejecting this story. It's yeah. the people above the me that yeah. won't accept this. So it's like, in a way, they're not having the balls to say, I'm rejecting this story. It's like, I want to take it, but I'm like bowing down to the people yeah. that are writing and, me a paycheck. And I, and I think that in general... It will be the downfall of the like literature in general. It's like we don't want to publish things that will make people uncomfortable. And it's like 
how much can you really learn about life if you're always comfortable? You know, like mm-hmm. that's a fucking Disney movie right there. Yeah. You know, just always comfortable, you know? So luckily somebody did accept the story and I do understand the concerns, but you know, my whole objective with the story was to kind of craft a 1984-esque story, but just with extreme hyperbolic sort of details. And I'm not, you know, trying to be insensitive entirely, but I just thought it would be interesting to see all of these progressive sort of policies implemented and to see what life could be like in 12 years if every sort of policy that is proposed gets passed, Mm -hmm. you know? And the whole concept of this Calvin Klein story is I was going to, before this whole, you know, this crazy summer happened, you know, with with all these, you know, crazy events, I had this idea of, I wanted to write a story from, from, you know, that, that outlines children. I think we have a lot to learn from, from children, you know, as weird as that is, I I think that there's an essence of a child that we need to hold on to what it's like to be a kid, to be wondrous and to be enthralled with the simple aspects of life, you know? And I think that we need to kind of harness our inner child to some capacity, you know, as an adult, I think that we take ourselves way too fucking serious, you know? And especially as a writer, you know, you're dealing with constant criticism, constant rejection. So I think that you, you know, to some capacity have to be able to laugh at it all going back to the absurd, you know, yeah. you have to look at life like it's fucking absurd. Otherwise you're going to fucking blow your brains out, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the, the people who wrote those rejection letters clearly recognized that the story was good and got that the details in the story are meant to be over the top and extreme and painting an absurd picture. Yeah. But they don't have confidence in the readers to make that same judgment that, oh, this is not meant to be, you know, taken 100% seriously that yes, there are commentaries on society of what's going on now. And then this writer extrapolating that into an absurdist future. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I can recognize that these it's a story and the, the, the rejectors recognize that, but that they don't have confidence in the readers for whatever reason to make the same conclusions. Yeah. And, and I mean, at this point in time, I am so like a nerd with rejection for a while. Rejection made me bitter and now it, it's making me better. Like I thrive on it. When I get these rejection letters, I'm like, good, fuck you. I'm going to get this published. You know, like you have to like, as a writer, as a copywriter, like I've dealt with so much criticism, so much rejection. I worked a year as a, a copywriter for a pharmaceutical agency. And, you know, I would spend hours on the weekend crafting a campaign just to have it fucking torn apart in front of five executives on a Monday morning, you know? So like at this point in time, like I, I could give a shit about rejection. And I think that that plays a major role in a lot of writers' life. Like you have to get a thick skin. You can't take anything personally. And, you know, based on this, like I had so many rejection letters for the story. All it took was one person to be like, this story's fucking awesome. Like, hell yeah, I'm yeah. it. And the next thing you know, it's published, you know? So what do you think was different about that publication that they decided to put it out there and the the other ones for whatever reason decided not to. So at this point in time, like, so my main goal is, is that 
I ventured into writing these short stories because I needed to build up, build up some sort of credibility. I'm about halfway done with a, a novel, a manuscript that I'm going to start pitching probably by the summer at some point. And I needed to kind of build up credentials. I, 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 um, you know, I have a couple of short stories that are published. I have the story, The Swim, that won the best in fiction at Across the Margin, an e-zine magazine. Um, you know, I had Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish, which is nominated for an Emerging Writers Award. And which I voted for. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. The other guys. No, I'm just <laughs> That's all good. No, I, I, I uh, voted for Chris Cooper, Emerging Writers <laughs> Award. Finn almost, buy, yeah, uh, yeah. Finn almost buys a goldfish, right? Yeah, that was that yeah. one. Okay. Which is my, like my favorite fucking story. But this is all like an amalgamation of, of what it's like to be a writer. And I think the most maddening aspect of being a writer is, is that it, this industry is rife with subjectivity, you know? It's not like you're a fucking accountant and it's like, if I add one plus one, it's going to equal two every fucking time, you know, like there is no algorithm. There's no formula for good writing. It's all about personal opinion. It's all about bias, you know, Yeah. and you've just got to send it out there and hopefully somebody identifies with it. So Finn almost buys a goldfish is your favorite. It, it is my favorite story because I wrote it one night just smoked a ton of weed and it just fucking came out. That, make, that makes a lot of sense yeah. now oh, yeah. knowing the the story in a good way. Yeah. And it was so effortless. Like I was just sitting there and the next thing I know, I'm like, it's almost 5,000 words. I'm like, holy shit, what time is it? You know? Did you have a panic attack while you were writing the story? Because <sighs> so, I picked out, with the, yeah. I, for each story, Okay, I tried to pick out the quote that for whatever re- reason had the most meaning for me. And for Finn almost buys a goldfish, I picked out the quote about him having a panic attack in the store. When yeah. when you read the story, you'll go through the whole process of him selecting the the fish and being inside his own head and yep. fish telling him to go fucking kill himself. <laughs> and but so the quote I picked out from the story is Finn starts becoming real aware of his own heartbeat. It's constant thumping in his chest. It's weight weightiness with each strike its impact on each beat and it feels and it beats like a heavy fucking sledgehammer and Finn thinks he's feeling pain along with each manic flutter but he's not entirely sure and when I read that it took me back to exactly how I felt when an anxiety attack comes on where I feel my heart or at least I think I feel my heart speeding up yeah and then I'm like looking for some other source of pain that my mind can latch on to and got feelings of anxiety reading the story which only points to how good the writing is that it yeah. can actually induce a panic attack. Yeah. Go yeah. read the story. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, for a yeah. panic attack. Um, but no, j- like seriously, it, uh, when I was reading it, I felt that this is the best articulated version of what I feel that I've read about panic attacks. It's takes me back to those moments where I can't explain what's going on, but I know this yeah. is happening in my body and everyone else probably thinks I'm fucking crazy and like the thoughts start to set in and heartbeat and shit yeah. like that. Yeah. So, so Finn almost buys a goldfish is, is I was figuring out a way to, I really wanted to die. So first of all, I guess you can kind of see the connection, the correlation between my book being rejected because it's not happy enough. So now I'm like, all right, I'm never writing a fucking happy story now. You know, like that's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm at. I'm like, I'm going to overwhelm you in darkness to the point where you're like, I can't 
not publish this stuff, you know? And I also at a, at a same sort of sentiment believe, you know, there's this quote by this Indian philosopher, Asho, and he says, a certain darkness is needed to see the stars. And that's something that really resonates with me because I think that to kind of get a full scale, a full vantage of life, you need to be able to go through the bad to see the good. You know, life can be harrowing and horrible and at the same time beautiful and inspiring. And I think that most of the time, if you can kind of, you know, portray the darkness, you can eventually see the light, you know, the good in life. And with Finn almost buys a goldfish, I wanted to really, if I wanted to write a story about anxiety and depression, it would fucking just be like, wow, this is a bummer to read, you know? Because it's it's not fun. Anxiety yeah. and depression is not fun. You know, like I can attest for that. So and I, it still has funny moments in the story where I laughed out so, loud. So that like was breaks my, from the the darkness. So that was my objective. I'm like, how can I write a story where you're confused? You don't know if this is a funny story or if this is like a fucking sad story. Yeah. And most people that read it be like, that story is hysterical. Some people read it and be like, wow, that was fucking really depressing. You know. And I kind of wanted to kind of explore the absurdity. Like the title is Finn almost buys a goldfish. That's the whole story. The dude, Finn is almost, almost buys a goldfish. Mm -hmm. That is literally the plot. He goes to, and I wanted to juxtapose, you know, these simplistic sort of ideas. Like he's going to go to the store and buy a goldfish, but I wanted to kind of explore the dichotomy of like simple things and abstract sort of concepts and the mm -hmm. way you think, you know? So like, He'll go to the store and he'll be like looking at goldfish and he'll, you know, under, he done, he's done research on it, you know? And at the same time, everything he, he stimulated with kind of elicits a memory, you know, about his brother he doesn't talk to anymore or his girlfriend he thought he was going to marry from college, you know? And I wanted to kind of show those two different completely dichotomous aspects, like the good and the bad you know, the, yeah. the, the mundane and the abstract together where it's like, you read this story and you're like, oh, it's fucking funny. But then you're like, oh shit, that's really fucking sad. Like you yeah. don't, you're like, you don't really know how to interpret it. And now that I'm thinking about it, that's how a panic attack goes Kinda because is, you yeah. go through these funnels where you're spiraling down these dark moments and you going through these memories in your life. Mm -hmm. and every once in a while, there's a bit of relief where you have a thought or maybe you forget you're having a panic attack, panic attack for a split second before it starts to set back in yeah. that you're having a panic attack or maybe you read a text from a friend or you think about something. You're distracted. For 10 seconds, your mind is distracted yep. and it's this it's relief. Yep. And then all of a sudden, you're thrown back into this whirlwind of panic and the structure of the story where he's hyper-focused on some aspects and then he's going through these memories and then also the the absurdist comic relief at certain points. Yeah. Because a, a panic attack is not all bad. It's certainly not all good. It has these nuanced aspects to it that I think the story shows in a realistic way. Yeah, yeah. And, and towards the end of the story... So a lot of my stories, you know, like if you read The Swim, you know, I, I kind of, there's a lot of symbolism in the stories and him buying a goldfish is kind of parodying our lives. Like we, 
indulge in bullshit all day. We indulge in Netflix and fucking Instagram and, you know, seeking digital validation on social media, you know? And that's supposed to be representative of this goldfish, like him going to, like, what is more boring than somebody going and buying a goldfish? You know what I mean? And I kind of wanted to exploit that. Like we constantly seek distraction from our own essence, you know? And whether it's depressive or manic, like we just want to avoid that at all costs. And like the concluding, you know, you know, towards the end, he's like, I don't know if I, I need this goldfish, you know? He's like, I think I just need to distract myself. And he's just like, well, I got to figure out what to put on my Instagram story, you know? Like, Do you try to think about approaching your writing with specific situations? So, so I, I do, I do. I, I, cause it is very specific and, and Finn almost buys a goldfish and, and, in the descent and then also the swim, it's not these super drawn out experiences. It's kind of a, a snapshot into people's lives at different moments. Even when I say, when, when I talk about specificity, I think about that. I actually wrote down the quote from the descent oh, where okay. he's chopping up the, the Adderall, the the, okay. the, the, chopping up the pills, probably three paragraphs describing from step one, when he <laughs> wakes up thinking about what ratio do I need to chopping yeah. it up? And I'll, I'll read a few lines from it. And, and you write, I push the blade into the Adderall, crushing it completely, proceeding to crack up any chunks creating a consistent florid powder, which I've done a few times in college. <laughs> like I, who has I, yeah, <laughs> I, I switched to squashing up the remnants of the blue pill into a delightful dust, pushing the powder back and forth, refining any irregularities. I combine the snowy piles together and push the grains into a tiny smiley face configuration. The eyes blue and the grin red. And anyone who's ever snorted Adderall knows exactly what this exactly. dude is trying to do. Like you're yeah. brushing it back and forth. Any substance in general where you're trying to like get the fine powder down to the finest grain possible. And I'm reading this, I'm like, yes, like I know exactly what's happening right now. I can yeah. like put myself in this character's point of view. And, and the, for me, it was the specificity of the experience that put me into that character's point of view. So the, the Descent is a story at this point in time, like when I wrote Descent, it came out in March and I was trying to explore different sort of characters and like the traumas and vicissitudes they experience in life. And I was just like, what would it be like? And this is just part of my mind. Like I have this fucking inherent darkness in my mind that I deal with on a constant basis, you know, and I figured out how to channel it into being productive, but this story, I wanted to kind of explore what would it be like if you had a kid and he fucking died at like six years old from a brain tumor? Mm-hmm. What does that do to a person? Yeah. You know, like how does that affect their marriage? How does that affect their day to day? You know, and a part of me identified with the protagonist. It's like he didn't know what to do. So he sought external, you know, illicit drugs, you know, and he, he sunk himself into that. I think that if you leave out detail, it's not realistic, you know, like mm-hmm. you could just say, Hey, he went and did drugs and you're like, Oh, cool. You know, like I want to give you the firsthand account of like what people think, you know, when they're embarking on this stuff. Like, not that I've ever lost, you know, knock on fucking glass or wood, 
I've never lost a kid or, you know, anybody, you know, to, to this capacity, you know, from cancer or, you know, brain tumor, but I wanted to explore like what that sort of trauma could do to somebody, yeah. you know? And, and with the, the dark ending and the descent, you feel for the protagonist, this guy that lost his son in marriage fell apart. It's not like he's this dark character that you don't know why he's doing what he's doing. Why is he taking these drugs? Why is he acting out? You know, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll read the the story if you're listening to, to hear how it all pans out. But I can guarantee that when you do read it, you'll at least, even if you don't agree with what the main character is doing, you understand his motivations. You understand the actions along with his darkness and why he would feel compelled to do something like that. Yeah. And he's, he's looking, he, he develops a scapegoat, uh, the doctor that couldn't save him, that told him that his son is going to be okay. And, and I think that that's a common theme. We, we tend to, to blame others, you know, for the, the, you know, the aspects of our life that are, that are unpleasant. And, you know, this character develops an obsession with the doctor, you know, and he, you know, takes it personally because I think, you know, anybody that loses somebody to that degree might ruminate and develop an obsession with somebody that was supposed to be a savior, you know? And like, when you read the story, you can't tell. It's like, is that doctor negligent, you know, in his treatment? Or is this protagonist just nuts? You know, mm -hmm. like, you don't know. It's like kind of this mind fuck, you know, and you're yeah. kind of on, on the journey for it. Yeah. The victim mentality is a common theme. In, in The Descent, he has the doctor... Mm -hmm. in the swim he talks about his bitch wife you know when is she gonna clean the fucking house like shit like that so the swim is is one of those so the swim is always gonna have a special part in my in my heart just because that was the first story i ever had published and i had a very a very form like so going back to that whole breakup year i kind of experienced a lot of sort of aspects of life i, I i've never really experienced death before and my my grandma at the time you know, she was living with us and she developed Alzheimer's and dementia. And I got to firsthand see how that affects you. And I've never really experienced death before, you know, and, you know, I know at some point, you know, I think about it every fucking day that like, I'm going to have to bury my parents at some point, you know, they're older. And it's like, I know, like I'm cognizant that the worst days of my life are still ahead of me. You know, I think about that constantly. But when I experience my firsthand account of death with my grandma, you know, she went and slipped in and out of these manic episodes where she is having conversations with her husband that has been dead for years, over a decade, a sister or a brother that's been dead for 20 plus years, a neighbor that she knew momentarily. And it's like, you kind of lose focus on life, you know, and, and like, you don't really realize how these interactions, these experiences affect you and how they seep into your mind to some degree until like 40, 50 years later, you know? And that was like so mind-boggling to me to see her just like terrified, you know, not sure what's going to happen, not sure who she's mm -hmm. talking to. And that was like kind of my first experience with death. And there was a lot to learn from it because you see this and it's like, what can I do right now to kind of prepare myself? Because we are all going to experience that to some degree. And we can surround ourselves with materialistic things. We can surround ourselves with relationships, but we will all face death alone. 
You know, yeah. like we can have people around us, but they won't be with us when we're experiencing. Yeah, I, that that's a particularly poignant topic right now with COVID because you have hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people globally dying, a lot of them without people being able to be with them in the hospital. That sucks. People watching their their wives, husbands, daughters, sons die through windows in the hospital. I, you know, I can't even imagine what that's like to be so close to someone yet have walls separating you and see someone die alone. Yeah. Well, just even the concept of, of having to go live in a nursing home towards the end of your life, like that's just so fucking archaic to, to me. And, and I understand it's not easy to, to care for somebody. Like I think about it all the time. Like am I parents going to enter that sort of stage where they're, you know, I can't care for them and I have to send them off to a nursing home to just die in disarray and confusion. And then like that shit is just sobering. It's a sobering fact because you can't avoid that. Like that shit is going to happen sooner or yeah. later, you know? Something I wanted to to ask you about the swim. Yeah. For you, what is the the water represent? Because I know so, in yeah. writing, there's a lot of ways Symbolism. that people can go with water. The line that I wrote down from the swim is, is the water has been a creative cleanse for me the past few swims. And mm-hmm. so there, there's death in the story. There's, there's creativity. There's cleansing. For you, what made you want to choose water as the main through line? So I had this eye-opening experience that same year that that I had the breakup and the death of my grandma, I was so depressed because of this breakup and just an array of things. I didn't know what I want to fucking do. I was driving one day and I, my first, my car at the time was a Trans Am, like rear, rear wheel drive, old school muscle car. And I had just gotten it washed and I was driving in the fast lane on the highway and I was like flying. You know, because like you can't drive slow in a fucking V8 muscle car. Yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, I'm so fucking depressed. Like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm so sad. Like, I was like debating, texting her. Like, it was just a low point in my life. And I just remember feeling this like dread, you know, just like, ah, like life sucks, you know? And then the next thing I know, the car in front of me is braking, right? So I have to slam on my brakes and I slightly turn my wheel. And I'm in the fast lane. And the next thing I know, I am fucking hydroplaning. I'm spinning. And I'm like going across the highway. And I just remember being in the moment. And I, the complete flip of emotions of being sad and depressed to being like, holy shit, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. You know, like that sort of mind fuck was wild. And I just remember the whole time, I'm just like closing my eyes. It felt like an hour, but it was like 20 seconds. The next thing I know, I'm on the shoulder of the highway facing the other way and I'm on skate. And my mood went from being so pessimistic to so grateful. And I think we get wrapped up in our daily lives that we become consumed with our disappointments, our expectations. And it sometimes takes these, you know, these near death experiences to realize how fortunate we are to fucking be alive, to breathe. and. I kind of wanted to explore that in the swim, you know, obviously, so the, the water is life, you know, like we're all floating down a stream and we're fighting currents and we're trying mm-hmm. to learn how to swim. We're trying to keep ourselves from drowning. 
And in that story, you know, he is all in his head. He's like, I feel like a failure. Life sucks. My wife sucks. I can't get a blowjob, you know, <laughs> all this shit. Like these are common yeah. themes, you know, people think might think about, you know, and he goes for this swim and, you know, he's lost in his head and he's thinking and he's like, oh, you know, this is great for me. You know, like this is going to help. And, you know, he's, he's so focused on just swimming and beating his record. And the next thing you know, he's, he's trapped against the current and he's like, holy fucking shit. Like I can't make it back. And like, I wanted to capture that whole sentiment of like being completely depressed and like wanting to give up on life. You know, there's an excerpt in there. He's like, is there anything more depressing than knowing you're worth dead? You know, you're, you're worth more dead, dead than alive. Than, yeah. And, you know, to see the complete flip of him knowing that he's stuck in this current and he is trying his hardest to swim back. You know, and you would think in the beginning, he'd be like, oh, this is great, you know, but he's like so overwhelmed. He's crying. He's like, holy shit, I don't want to die. And I wanted to push that further where he kind of gets this sense of peace in the end where he's like, he has to acquiesce to it. Like, this is what happened. You know, you made a shitty decision, shitty circumstance. And, you know, he gets this vision of his daughters and his wife in the future and they're so happy and you know, he, he has to cope with his circumstances. And I wanted to really capture that dichotomy of like depression and just like wanting to die to completely be like, holy shit, I don't want to die. You know, like, and I think that is something that is universal. It's, it's a concept that people can kind of relate to because I feel like we get caught up in such bullshit, you know? Something I wanted to ask you is what, what advice would you have for people about combining substances with creativity. And as a podcaster, I've drank obviously while I'm podcasting. I've smoked while I'm podcasting. I do a bit of writing when I'm trying to plan out videos or other sort of content. And it's a constant battle to adjust the dosages or how often I want to smoke or drink or be sober, whatever it is. Like, am I adding to my creativity? Am I taking away from it? Like, what mm-hmm. is, what is, yeah. what is this? What, I mean, what advice would you have for people <laughs> that are kind of like navigating those waters? Cause I don't think it, it's not a good or bad thing. No matter how people, how much people say that, yeah. oh, you don't need substances to create, or you do need substances to create. That's not yeah. what I'm asking. I, I, I want to know, like in a world where you have felt certain effects from being high as fuck and writing a great story or being two or three drinks deep and you just all of a sudden get an idea for a video or a podcast or you think of something that substance basically puts your mind at a level that you may have not been able to get to that place without that enhancement for lack of a better word. No, no, I I understand exactly. What what would be your advice for people trying to navigate those waters and what has that been like for you when you're creating that relationship Mm -hmm. with substances? So, you know, there's a, there's an old adage and, you know, it's kind of confounded with whether Hemingway said it or DeVry said it, but there's this old saying that says, write drunk, edit sober. And for me, like, I'm not gonna 
advocate for dropping acid or shrooms and then just go try and write a manuscript, you know? (laughs) I mean, you'll go on a journey, but I don't know if you need to write it down. But I do think there's a happy medium, you know, for me, like, you know, marijuana has been a a creative elixir for me, but I'm not sitting around, you know, smoking blunts all day. Like I'll take, you know, a couple of hits, kind of get your mindset. I think that there's a happy medium. I do think that there's, it's, it's harder to edit a blank page than it is to edit something with shitty writing. So as long as you can get it out there, I yeah. think that that's a great step. I do think you need a level of consciousness to, to write to some capacity if it's going to be any good. You know, so and you like, can't be completely you gone. Can't, you, you can't. I mean, you got you to take a little bit to take the inhibition off. Like for me personally, when I write, like most of the, sometimes I'll write it and I'll be like, this fucking sucks. You know, like I don't want to write this, but sometimes if I get a little buzz going, I'll be like, fuck Like it. something to quiet the voice in your head that's yeah. telling you it's shitty. And I think that that's kind of a microcosm for life. We're always trying to kind of quiet that voice that says like, you're not enough. You fucking suck. You know, like we're always yeah. trying to abate that sort of voice from, from crippling us. I heard on uh, Tim Ferriss, he had an investor, Naval Ravikant, on recently. That's the guy does the bulletproof or five bullets or something like that. Five. Tim Ferriss does five bullet Friday. There he is. His through line for his podcast is that he talks to people that he considers at the top of their field, whatever it is. And so he has Naval Ravikant, who's an investor and they talk about the roommate inside your head and that Naval's advice was you should treat the voice in your head like a person, like a roommate, because you wouldn't, if your roommate was constantly telling you, hey, when you go to work today, that presentation is going to be the shittiest thing you've ever done. Oh, absolutely. Or you're never going to amount to anything in your life. You would tell your roommate to shut the fuck up or you would tell him to get out and you weren't going to live with him anymore. So if you treated the voice in your head like a person, you would give it much less leeway and you would talk back to it. He talks about phys- like verbally talking back and whether it's in his head or out loud saying, you know, go fuck yourself basically to this voice in yeah. your head. And and since I heard him talk about that, this is probably a couple months ago on the podcast, I've definitely felt a positive effect from hearing those voices in my head, wherever they're coming from saying, you know, this, this is going to be the shittiest podcast you've ever recorded or, yeah. or you're an imposter. <laughs> you're, you're, you have no business oh, talking. Dude, no one, want, no one gives a fuck about what you're doing, which may be true, but at the same time, I still feel excited by it. So I want to do it. And treating that voice like a roommate has given me more freedom in navigating that relationship. I had a, a few a general questions on writing that I wanted to ask you as, as we started to, to wrap up Mm -hmm. for aspiring writers out there and, and anyone who wants to write in any capacity, Mm -hmm. even if it, it stays a hobby, maybe they're the the only one. Choose a different occupation. Okay. That's, that's uh, advice number one. (laughs) What are, what are mistakes that people are likely to make when they first start writing and what Mm. can they do to stop making it? So the first mistake is don't besides getting into writing as a yeah. career. <laughs> no, absolutely. Second mistake then is you're not special. Okay. Every single story you think you have has been written before. You need to remove yourself like the solipsist like viewpoint where like the self is all that exists. 
Like you need to remove that thought that you're special, your story is unique because chances are that story has been written a thousand times. And once you do that, you won't take things personally. You won't take rejection personally. It took a while for me to kind of digest that sort of concept, you know, like everybody wants to feel like they're beautiful and unique, you know, butterflies and everything they write, somebody's going to want to read it, you know. This industry is highly critical. So the quicker you can recognize that, you know, that your, your story and you in general are not special, the faster you'll be able to start a start writing from like an objective standpoint, you know. It's funny when you talk about rejection and reminding yourself that you're not special. I think about rejection and the dating process. Yeah. Same sort as, of mentality. As a, as a yeah. single 27-year-old guy living in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. I need to remind myself often that I'm not special, especially when I'm getting rejected or I, earlier in my life, I would take rejection personally in dating where I thought I got to make this person be into me so I can reject them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's a whole power struggle. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Power dynamic. And now I'm much more of the mindset, which I guess just comes with maturity. If someone rejects me or if I reject them, the timing wasn't right. The situation wasn't right. Me being myself in a more bold fashion, that's either going to lead to this person liking me more or rejecting me more quickly. So mm-hmm. I'd rather get to that point where they, after a first or second date, are going to think, I like this dude or I fucking hate this dude mm-hmm. and I don't want to talk to him again or I want to talk to him again in a big way. And so that's made me... it One, makes dating more exciting and two, you waste so much less time. Oh, absolutely. Because you're not like being a skim milk version of yourself. Well, well, here's the thing. I mean, I mean, to kind of transition to kind of give that some sort of context, like we put facades on every single day. We portray ourselves as these personages that we want to believe that we are. We want to kind of impress people. We want to posture and we fill ourselves with these identities and, and the ways we, ways we want to be perceived. And we kind of, you know, put a varnish over our, 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 our authentic selves. And it isn't until you start embracing your authentic self that you're going to actually start meeting somebody that's, you know, your sort of caliber, you know? And, and I think that's with every aspect of life where we're constantly trying to portray ourselves as people that we want to believe that we are. Yeah. Whether it's dating or creating, there's that layer where you're not sure if you want to break through it to be your true self. You have this protective professional nine to five office version of yourself where you want other people to accept you. At the same time, if you break through that layer, it gives other people permission to also stop bullshitting too. And then that guy or girl sees you do that and they're like, oh, we're not putting on airs here. I can actually be myself around this person. So it kind of maybe starts a chain reaction. Well, the problem is, is that if we portray ourselves as our genuine, authentic selves, we are subjecting ourselves to vulnerability. We're susceptible, you know? Because if I'm showing you who I am, if you get rejected and you're showing yourself who you really are, what's worse than that? 
unless you don't take rejection personally, yeah, which takes a lot of effort and oh, something absolutely. I'm constantly working on. Like I said, with dating or, or creativity, we're all doing and, it, man. We're yeah, all. having the non-personal reaction to rejection in your back pocket for me has been what's given me the strength to be myself in certain circumstances, whether it's on a podcast or hanging out with friends, going on a, a first date or something like that, where I know, okay, if this person rejects me, that it's, it happens. It's, it's okay. And that is giving me, it's information. Yeah. It's information at the end of the day. It's saying this person is not the right one exactly. for me, or this person is not a, going to be a future subscriber of yeah. this podcast. There you and go. that's okay. That's, but that's we're, we're conditioned to want to please everybody. We want everybody to like us. And that is like so out of touch with reality. And it's not until we accept that we're not for everybody. You know, like I accept the fact that my stories are not for everybody, you know, and once you embrace that and once you're okay with that, you're going to be okay with yourself. Yeah. Well, your, your stories, anyone's stories is not for anybody with the rejection letters. And, and I've never kind of seen behind the curtain of rejection in the publishing industry. And I'm, I'm glad you sent me the letters <laughs> because these people are basically saying, you are my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. I can't publish. I'm this. not allowed. To yeah, like I'm, not allow- I'm not allowed to like you. Yeah. I'll read it. I'll read it. Whoever publishes it, I'll you know, I'll share it for my burner Twitter account. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yep. uh, I'm That's not going to come out and publicly support yep. this. It's interesting and exciting to me and I can't yep. get behind it, which is kind of a sad thing. It, it Listen, man, it, it takes time, you know, and like it, it takes practice, you know, um, like I'm 33 and I'm just starting to come into like the acceptance of who I am and the fact that like, I don't have a thousand friends and like, you know, I'm okay with that. Like the end of the day, you have to be okay with yourself. And that's the most, that's the most important, crucial aspect of existing. And if you're not okay with yourself, that leads to all sorts of torrents of just fucking madness. Do you ever self-publish? So here's the thing. And, And my anxiety has sort of transformed into this need to be productive. And I'm okay with that. You know, like I, I recognize it. I understand that like, I can't watch more than an hour of TV or the voice Mm -hmm. in my my roommate in my head will be like, Hey, you fucking piece of shit. Go write something, go read Mm -hmm. a book, stop watching TV. And I understand it's like the aspect of life that you have to kind of really deal with. And it's, it's not, it's, it's not pleasant, but you know, you have to kind of be true to yourself. So for for self-publishing, have you ever thought about putting your stories out on a Chris Cooper medium blog? So, so, so here, yeah. So, so you know, I, I kind of- If you had a story them. that you believe, you had a b- belief in where you were like, all right, this, this story has not gotten accepted. I believe in this story though. I'm just going to put it out on medium or something. Well, so like, like, for example, my book, right? That mm-hmm. was rejected four years ago. Like mm-hmm. um, I've acquiesced, acquiesced to the point where that book is done, you know? Mm-hmm. and self-publishing is, is alluring to people. You know, you want to get their name out there. But for me as a person, I wouldn't feel authentic to myself until somebody says, okay, I want to, I want to publish that. Okay. You know? It's just, it's not for me. It's for, so, it's so for the collaboration thing. aspect. I, I am, I am my harshest critic. 
You know, there's no harsher critic than the voice inside of my head. And the voice inside my head says, no, you're not self-publishing. You need to fucking endure rejection. You need to better yourself. You need to learn how to write. You need to craft better descriptions, better word choices until somebody says this is worth publishing. And that's where I'm at. And I'm perfectly okay with that. If I write this book I'm working on that I fucking devote hours at night into, if it doesn't get picked up, I'm okay with that. And that's it. You have to be true to yourself. The last thing I wanted to ask you is what motivates you to keep writing short stories? Because you have the the day job as a copywriter. Yeah. It obviously takes a lot of time and effort to put in the stories on top of your full-time job, on top of relationships, on top of all the other bullshit that comes with living life. What motivates you to keep writing short stories? How the voice that you want to put out into the world, your your own boss in a sense, as a writer, when other people may stop short of that or may give up or may just say, fuck it. Uh, And I think it just comes down to just being true to yourself. And at this point in time, like I'm probably going to take a break from short stories because I want to get this novel, you know, this manuscript ready to pitch by the summer. But, you know, if I go back to it, then it's fine. You know, if some, if an idea comes to me, if I want to explore an emotion or a certain circumstance, you know, then I'll, I'll start writing. But the hardest aspect, the, the crux of my writing career is, is that, you know, when I first published The Swim, I was faced with the concept of like, are you going to write for a publisher? Or are you going to write for yourself? And at the end of the day, you have to write for yourself. You have to. Otherwise, you're going to constantly feel like a fucking fraud, you know? And that's where I'm at. I'm like, if I fucking write this 100,000 word novel that I, you know, poured my soul out to and and it doesn't get published, then that's fine. That's the fucking absurd, you know? That's fine. That's it. You know, you got to stop trying to live your life for this goal. You know, you have to be okay with with whatever happens to you. Otherwise, if you don't reach a goal, that this is the type of shit that fucking makes you want to mm-hmm. walk out into traffic. Yeah. You have to be okay with whatever comes your way, you know? And for me, it's like, I have to get back to like writing for myself, you know? And that's what it comes down to. I think that's a good good spot to end off writing <laughs> for yourself. Yeah. Oh, and thank you for taking the time to to hop on the podcast. Dude, thanks for having me. I know this you drove awesome. out across the bridge from Jersey. It's all good, man. But yeah, thank you. And for anyone listening, go read The Descent. Go read Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish. Go read Calvin Klein. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll link all the short stories in the description of the podcast or wherever you're listening. You can click into it. There is a novel on the horizon by we'll Chris say. Cooper that yeah. you can look forward to. If you're a literary agent out there, yes, go ahead. Chris Cooper. Where, where, well, speaking of that, where can people contact you? Where can they follow you if they have any questions so, that I want to hit you up? I do partake in Instagram as much as I hate it and as much as I hate myself for indulging at it, but you can follow me at coop, C-O-O-P-D-8-8 on Instagram. And you can see links to my short stories. You know, I I do have a sponsorship with with Phoenix, which is a supplement company. So I I still, you know, engage in the strongman sort of aspects. You know, as, as cerebral as I am, I also need that visceral aspect of working out and you know, being one with yourself and breathing and fucking lifting and, and, and engaging in like primitive sort of aspects. So 
Hell yeah. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Well, this has been uh, an incredible Saturday afternoon yeah, leaking man. into the night. I, I appreciate it. Absolutely, Thanks, Chris. man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Augzoro podcast. To keep up with everything Augzoro, you can follow us at at Augzoro on Instagram and TikTok and at Augzoro TV on YouTube. Also, subscribe today to our twice monthly newsletter, The Source, which brings you the most inspiring and underrated books, podcasts, videos, and articles we come across, as well as the latest Augzoro content. Go to augzoro.com forward slash The Source to subscribe. Until next time.